0: All right, good morning. Uh, My name is Dwayne Spearman. This is Directional Bible Ministries, a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Today is October the 25th, and interestingly enough, we find ourselves in Acts chapter number 25. So, um, this will be session number 37 today. Session number 37, last time we were together on a Sunday morning, um, session 36, uh, we got down, we did. We covered chapters 21, 1 through 24, 27, which was all of chapter 24, and again, just want to remind you that uh, <clears throat> all the audio studies uh, can be found on the blog. Uh, as well as at SoundCloud. There's also a, uh, an app you can download from SoundCloud to listen on your phone. Uh, then also the video studies, which are, have been recorded on YouTube. They are also... You can get those on the blog as well or go and subscribe to the YouTube channels. So uh, you can check all those out. And then, of course, written studies are also there. So... Anyway, good morning. Hope you've had a great week. I see uh, my brother there. Hope you're doing well today. I'm um, going to be down in your area next week. Uh, so, uh, not sure if you're going to be around, but we need to chat with each other and see if there's a chance we can get together and visit. But, um, let me get back to whatever it is I'm doing here. Um... All right, I think I got everything coordinated. <laughs> I've learned that I've got to record the audio uh, separately. Um, if you don't record it separately, you got to convert it, which means you lose a little bit of the clarity. So, I uh, record the audio separately as well. So I got to make sure that's running. Uh, then I've uh, <clears throat> I've also learned that uh, you need to record the. Uh, Video separately uh, in case you lose internet and you crash and you lose the entire study. So, anyways, um, let me just I just hit record on the video here. So, uh, let me just say again, welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. My name is Dwayne Spearman, teaching ministry called Encourage, Disciple, and Challenge the People of God. So, Acts chapter number 25. uh, Every time I don't do something right, something crashes and I lose it like I did last week when I lost a video recording, but I was able to salvage the audio recording. So uh, next week I'll be on the road. I'll be traveling a little bit, but I plan on uh, still doing everything every morning. Um, much more mobile, but uh, I do plan on doing it. It'll be the first time I've tried it. So let's see how it goes. I'm an early riser, so that doesn't bother me at all. And obviously doesn't bother you. So um, that's great, brother. I will get in touch with you. So let's go ahead and talk about that. I'd love to catch up with you when I'm down there in the area next week. So anyway, chapter number 25 of the book of Acts, chapter number 25. You remember in the book of Acts, pretty much Paul went to Jerusalem in chapter 21. So now we're all the way down in chapter number 25, and Paul... As you know, he went into Jerusalem. It was prophesied by Agabus and others that uh, he would be arrested, he'd be accused of by the Jews. And it was the Jews, and make no mistake, it was the unbelieving Jews. Uh, You remember when he first came into Jerusalem, and he met with James and the elders, there were believing Jews there. But they're not the one that accused him. They were the ones that were inquiring of him, was he really teaching as they had heard? against the law of Moses and circumcision and the customs. And so, you know, James told him, as soon as they find out you're here, they're going to want to talk to you about that. But they're not the ones that accused him. The ones that accused him were the unbelieving Jews that followed him down from Ephesus. Um, They're the ones that, uh, as he was coming out of the temple or going into the temple, he was with the four that had made the Nazarite vow. They're the ones that stirred... uh, the accusations against him. And then from that point forward, they kind of disappear, you know, and Paul ends up getting saved a few times by Lysias, you know, the Roman uh, captain. Um, and, you know, he's he he allows Paul to address the multitude and, you know, they're away with him. They're wanting to kill him. Then he brings them before the council, you know, and then, of course, he stirs them up once he figure figures out. One part is Pharisees, the other part is Sadducees. And uh, so anyway, he got the Republicans and the Democrats mad at each other uh, because the, uh, (laughs) I say that tongue in cheek, Um, the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, the afterlife spirit world, the Sadducees did not. And uh, so he got them stirred up against each other, and at that that point forward, you have, I believe, the Sadducees making accusations against him because, and of course, their accusations really had nothing to do with mosaic law or circumcision or customs. It had everything to do with that Paul was preaching the resurrection, and they despised that message because if Christ indeed be risen from the dead, and you know they killed the Son of God, they just they you know they just threw away every Old Testament prophecy about the redemption and restoration of Israel. So that was a serious accusation to them, I think more so than the Mosaic law and circumcision and customs. Um, And of course, Paul has already appeared, um, you know, after the council, he appeared before Felix. I think of the cat every time I I think of Felix. Um, But uh, anyway, Felix appeared for him, uh, governor of the province. And then of course he's replaced by Festus, And, um, you know, and then Festus brings him before Agrippa, you know, and then it was under Agrippa that he said, you know what, I'm just appealing to Caesar. Uh, So, well, he appealed to Caesar under Festus, and then Agrippa verified it to Caesar, you'll go. But uh, anyway, and then Paul makes his way to to Rome. So today we find ourselves in chapter number 25, verse number 1. Now, when Festus was come into the province after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. You remember we talked about how um, while you always make a lie, you're always going up to Jerusalem geographically, Um, but it's more of a spiritual word. Just everything is going up to Jerusalem, and then when you leave, you're going down. Uh, You're descending from Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief priest and the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him. So this is Porcius Festus. He's the one that replaced Felix. Historically, we've talked about how they were both just sitting on on a time bomb. The Jews were very difficult to deal with. Uh, Pilate knew that firsthand as well. They were they were just very uh, hard to control. They, uh, you know, they uh, they were hard to govern. Uh, I made a joke. There, de Blasio's figured that out in New York City as well. Uh, <laughs> but we know historically this was the beginning of an eruption that was going to take place. Because after Felix, um, there, was a, there was just a quick series of governors before the war of the Jews broke out in 66. After Felix came Festus, and then historically after Festus came Albinus, and then after Albinus came Florus. Uh, And, of course, that ended with the War of the Jews, 66 through 73. And we know that because of the writings of Josephus. He details all of these these events in his work called the Wars of the Jews or the History of the Destruction of Jerusalem that culminated in 70 AD uh, under Titus Vespasian, the Roman general. So all of this, Festus and Felix here are sitting on a ticking time bomb. They realized that that these these Jews are going to end up having to be put down eventually. You remember Lysias he thought that that Paul was an Egyptian insurrectionist that had led a rebellion that had disappeared. so it was not only on the minds of the governors, it was on the minds of the Roman um, soldiers as well. Uh, so this was a, a time bomb for sure, and you'll remember that from Acts twenty twenty one, when uh, Lysias thought that maybe he was the the one that was instigating this rebellion again, and that's why Lysias didn't initially let him go because he wanted to find out he 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 wanted to find out what Paul was being accused of, um, and then of course in in uh, verse number two. Then the high priest and the chief priest informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him, that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. Uh, so they they wanted him dead. Um, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let him them therefore, let them therefore, said he, which. Among you are able go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. So again, the Jews were actively trying to uh, kill Paul. They were trying to get uh, Rome to transport Paul so that they could ambush him and kill him. You remember that was the first, you know, the first uh, hint that there was a conspiracy against Paul because Paul's sister um, had found out and sent the nephew to talk to Lysias. You know they're going to ask you to bring him down, and on the way, forty men have vowed that they're not going to eat or they're not going to drink until they have killed this man. So now they're imploring again, uh, trying to get 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 him to let him go, so that they could ambush them along the way and kill Paul. But Festus um, appears to be a little too too smart for that. And then in verse number six, and when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down. Unto Caesarea. Notice he went down into Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. Now, of course, that word judgment seat, uh, that's where we get the word Bema there in, in 25 6. Um, you see here, let's see, it talks about the judgment seat. See, there's that word Bema seat. That we as believers, the body of Christ, will appear before, uh, not so much to determine our salvation, but our rewards. Uh, excuse me. So we're going to appear before this uh, judgment seat one day. Not this one, but you know that's where we get the word. Uh, that's where judgment was handed down. Uh, so he, and he commanded Paul to be brought. Um, Of course, that judgment seat is talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all... Uh, and as the preacher says in the original Greek, the word all means all, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So it's the same word there, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And we describe this more so as an award ceremony, if you will. I mean, the fact that we're there means that we're saved, (laughs) you know, but uh, we will be judged. Um, You know, the Bible talks about how that he... uh, um, you know, that um, we'll, we'll do various things and we'll have judgment. Paul talks about crowns. I think he mentions at least five crowns um, that will be handed out. So um, that's what he's talking about there with the judgment seat. And then in verse number seven, and when he was come, the Jews, which came down again from Jerusalem, stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, uh, which, by the way, they could not prove. Um, of course, as Paul has already stated, they they have no proof of anything that they're accusing him of. And understand, this, this was a whole contest of whether or not they could get Paul to be accused of something that the Romans would give a rip about. Uh, the Romans didn't care about the Mosaic Law. They didn't care about circumcision or the customs. They didn't care anything about that. Felix figured it out very quickly. Festus is figuring it out. Agrippa's is going to figure it out. Um you know, these guys are just stirred up because Paul preaches is preaching the resurrection. Um, but they're trying to get something. They're trying to throw something at Paul that's going to stick. Um, you know, so um, and then notice um, in, uh, <clears throat> in verse number eight and while he while he while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, You remember he was initially accused of uh, teaching against the Mosaic law, neither against the temple. You remember they accused him, these Jews that came down from Asia, Ephesus, that he had profaned the temple. But Luke writes that they had mistakenly thought that he had taken Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the temple with him, and he had not, nor yet against Caesar. That's the only thing that could have possibly stuck at this point. Uh, accusing him of rebellion um, because, remember, they said that he was a, a, a seditious person. He was a pestilent person. Um, have I offended anything at all? In other words, Paul is just pleading his innocence here. And and then, but Festus <clears throat> um Willing to do, do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go to Jerusalem, there be judged of these things before me? Um, interestingly, um, Paul um, has stated his innocence in regards to all these charges. Um, he's not guilty of any of these accusations that were lodged against him in, in Acts twenty-one twenty-one. Um the, the, the thing that I pointed out in my study through the week is notice that Paul is still preach is preaching these things. In other words, he's saying, I'm not preaching against these things. I'm not preaching against the law of Moses or circumcision or the customs. And he continues to say, I'm preaching these things. Um, and the fact that Paul, chapter 25, is still preaching these things so many years later, has to draw doubt in anyone's mind about whether or not the church was really born in Acts chapter number 22, because there should have been a light, a, 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 flip, a flip that should have taken place. Even Paul's salvation on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter number nine, you know, seven chapters later, uh, Paul did not even know the gospel of grace. Uh, it had not been revealed yet. It was a it was a it was a mystery that had been hidden. Paul was converted under the kingdom gospel, the kingdom gospel, which is sim- simply repentance and baptism, and a keeping of the Mosaic law. And Paul, all this time, is proclaiming, "I am still keeping the Mosaic law. I am still doing that." Why is Paul still doing that if? It's gone. If 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 he's if it's now 100% grace, why is Paul still doing that? Because we are in a transition. We have two dispensations, if you will, running in parallel for a very brief time. That's why the book of Acts has to be viewed as a transitional book from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem to Antioch, from the kingdom to grace. Um. Randy White points out three things in regards to this. Paul was under the law, and thus we are all under the law as well. Yeah, That's the first conclusion that, that we could possibly draw from this. Paul is still under the law, therefore we're all still under the law as well. Or Paul was not under the law, and he was just lying. He was lying to them in regards to whether or not he was preaching against the law of Moses, circumcision, and the customs. That's the only other conclusion you can draw. So Paul was either under the law, which is the foundation of a covenant theology, or Paul was lying at this point, or just maybe Paul was under the law because he was under the Jews, still living in a time when the kingdom was still being offered to the Jewish nation. And he was teaching a personal salvation from all sins outside the law of Moses according to the revealed mystery. So in other words... Paul was preaching kingdom to Jews and grace to Gentiles. I mean, that's the only option, I think, that we can come up with. Either he was a liar, or he was still under the law, or something was going on. Something was running in parallel here, and that's where the whole Mid-Acts argument comes from, that something is running along in parallel here we are Paul was in a unique period of transition in which Israel was slowly diminishing it was slowly rejecting its king and its kingdom offer and and it was in a decline and eventually Paul would be preaching only the grace gospel to the gentiles in other words the rejection would be complete and unfortunately, that rejection doesn't just happen overnight. That that rejection didn't happen in Acts chapter number two. That rejection didn't happen at the crucifixion on the cross. Uh, the rejection was a slow, God-showing all long-suffering patience, and the, the nation was just slowly rejecting it. This uh, This little graph that I put up last time really shows this diminishing here. Uh, as, you know, Israel's just slowly falling. Uh, in Romans, um, in Romans chapter 11, verse number 12, it says, now if the fall of them, who's them, the Jew, be the riches of the world, then the diminishing of them, that's referring to the Jew, be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more they the Jews' fullness. So it was a slow diminishing, the book of Acts has to be viewed as a slow transition that's taking place, again, from Peter to Paul, from kingdom to grace, from Jerusalem to Antioch, um, and and then, of course, we're going to end up with the Pauline epistles, Romans through Philemon, where he is going back and forth at some points, especially 1st, 2nd Corinthians, uh, Galatians, are Ephesians more so, where he's going back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles, and you got to look at the personal pronouns there. Um, but that's the only way this can be viewed. Uh, so when Paul says, "Why well, answered for himself, neither neither against the law of the Jews, I wasn't teaching against the law of the Jews. I wasn't teaching against the temple. As a matter of fact, I was keeping the law of the Jews by going to the temple to fulfill the Nazarite vow." And then he says in verse 9, but Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, wilt thou go to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these things before me? The word but means that Festus knew that he was innocent, but still chose to do the Jews a favor and drag out the trial in Jerusalem. And again, why would Festus want to do this? Because of everything that was exploding around him. (laughs) He was trying to appease the Jews for political gain. And then in verse 10, then said, Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. Now, he wasn't standing for Caesar, but he was standing before Caesar's governmental authority in Festus. And he says, this is where I need to be judged. I don't need to go back to Jerusalem. To the Jews, I've done nothing wrong, as you very well know. So Paul, knowing his rights as a Roman citizen makes it clear that he did not want to be a part of Festus's political games and that Felix knew full well that he had done nothing wrong. Again, in actuality, Festus had nothing concrete that would demand that the trial continue. He was merely seeking political favor from the Jews. He was trying to keep his job. Uh, Understand that Felix had just lost his to him. In Acts 25, 25, and when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and he committed, he himself has appealed to Augustus. So we're going to see here, he found nothing wrong with him. And then Paul said, for if I be an offender, or if I've committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. In other words, kill me if I'm guilty. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, and these being the Jews, no man may deliver me unto them. I'm not going back to Jerusalem, is what Paul is saying. I appeal unto Caesar. So Paul readily admits that that if he did something wrong, he's willing to pay for it. But if he did nothing wrong, which he knew full well that he had done nothing wrong, he said, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I appeal my case to Caesar." So Paul knew full well what was going on. And again, only a Roman citizen could have done this. Paul knew his rights and Paul demanded them. And that was the uniqueness of Paul's calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the only one. Peter couldn't have done this. James couldn't have done this. Paul was a Roman city from no mean city. He was from Cilicia. You know, he was a Roman by birth. He didn't buy his Roman citizenship like Lysias had done. He said, I was born a Roman citizen. So Paul stood up for his rights. You know, and, and I think there's, there's a principle there today that we need to learn in the church. We need to stand up for our rights. You know, some Christians just get all bent out of shape when you're patriotic, um, I found that usually those are the ones that have never been in the military because um, they don't know what true patriotism looks like. They don't know the cost of true patriotism. Um, and I'm not being harsh. They're, they're just ignorant of it. I'm very patriotic, uh, and I can be patriotic, and I can stand up for my rights and still love God. Um, you know, I mean, I think we, ha- we have a duty to fulfill our God-given rights and responsibilities as Americans. Yeah, I'm a Christian first, for sure, but I'm also an American. Um, and again, I, I just think we have a responsibility to exercise the rights that God has given to us within reason. And there's nothing wrong with demanding rights as an American, or Paul as a Roman, and still not be, and still be a believer? <laughs> I mean, you can do these things. Again, I said the other day, I get tired of little weak spine Christians making it sound like the church needs to lay down and let the world roll over them. We don't need to roll lay down and let the world roll over us. Um, I believe we need to be active in the political process. Um, nobody's perfect. No system of government is perfect. You know, I think the most perfect system of government is a theocracy, personally. Um, Democracies have faults. Aristocracies have faults. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I believe much of uh, Paul's appeal uh, in regards to Paul's appeal to Caesar was he knew he had to go to Rome anyway. So why not let Rome pay the fee? Why not Rome just get him there? Uh, that's where that's where he knew he was going. Remember, God had told him back in chapter number 23, the Lord had said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified to me in Jerusalem, so must thou also bear witness of me in Rome. So I'm going to Rome. You know, might as well let uh, Rome pay for the transportation. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, hast thou appealed to Caesar? Then to Caesar thou shalt go. So Festus had no choice but to honor Paul's request. And of course, when it says when he conferred with the council, it's almost like legal counsel. And um, so, he had no choice because Paul was a Roman citizen and he had every right to appeal his case um, to Caesar. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came into Caesarea to salute Festus. Now, we meet Agrippa II and his wife Bernice. This is a sordid lot here. (laughs) here. Uh, Agrippa's father is the one that killed James the one that fell over dead when he gave not the glory to God, do you remember in Acts chapter number 20? Um, That was his father, Agrippa I. Uh, And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, and they came of one accord, having made blasteth the king, Chamberlain, of their friend desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, made an oration to them, and the people gave a shout, saying, That is the voice of a god and not a man. So you'll remember, um, he fell over dead. Um, now, that would mean that his grandfather would have been Herod the Great. Um, Bernice is quite a different matter. Uh, if you read a little bit of her history, and many believe that she was actually Agrippa's sister. And that she was actually having an incestuous relationship with her brother. Now, there's nothing in the scripture that says that. Even history tends to be a little vague in that regard. But Josephus says that later, uh, during the first Jewish-Roman war, that she actually began a love affair with Titus Flavius Vespasianus, which would have been Titus Vespasian who was the Roman general in 70 AD that that, uh, destroyed Jerusalem. However, her unpopularity among the Romans compelled Titus to dismiss her when he ascended as emperor in 79. So uh, she's got a a pretty uh, sordid past there. Uh, And then notice in verse uh, number 14, um, and when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's Cause unto King Herod saying, this is this, there is a certain man that was left in bonds by Felix about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews informed me desiring to have judgment against him to whom I have answered. It is not the manner of Romans to deliver any man to die before he has been accused. He has, he has been accused by his accusers face to face. And have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. So he's justifying the whole reason he set up a a conversation with Paul. Therefore, when we were come hither, without delay, on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and I commanded the man to be brought forth. So now Festus takes it upon himself to bring Agrippa and Bernice up to speed in regard to Paul's case. And notice that he says Paul should have seen his accusers face to face. This never happened. His accusers were the Jews from Asia, from Ephesus, that accused him originally uh, back in chapter number, I think it was chapter number, yeah, back in chapter number 21. Uh, That never happened. And Paul pointed that out on several occasions. Those who were pressing the issue were merely those who did not like Paul because his message in regards to the resurrection. And this would have been Sadducees, and the implications that came from that, and they wanted him to, to be destroyed. These were the ones making the the uh, the accusations against Paul. Um, and then notice in verse eighteen, against whom, when the accuser stood up, they brought none accusations of such things as I supposed. In other words, they didn't bring anything that Roman law would care about, but. They had questions against him in regards to their own superstition and of one Jesus that was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Bingo. (laughs) Festus had read very clearly um, what was going on there. Um, In other words, Paul was not accused of anything that the Romans uh, would have cared about. Instead, he, just like Felix saw that the accusations had nothing to do with the laws of the room and everything to do with Jewish superstition. Um, Again, the Jews were merely upset that Paul preached the resurrection. Remember that when we spoke of this earlier, the meaning of the word superstition means belief in the spirit world. Um, And, of course, that angered the Sadducees because they did not believe in the spirit world. And then notice in verse number 20, And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go back to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also hear the man myself tomorrow. Now, notice Festus had roused Agrippa's curiosity, and he wanted to question this Paul guy as well. And then notice, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come and Bernice, with great pomp and entered into the place of hearing, and the chief captains and the principal, principal men of the city and Festus' Festus's commandment, Paul was brought forth. So now Paul is brought to stand before Agrippa. And Festus said, King Agrippa all men which are present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. And when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. But I don't have a reason to send him to uh, Caesar because if I write, that it's all about their superstition. Uh, I can't do that. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, specifically before you, O King Agrippa, that after examination, I might have something to write. So Festus makes it pretty clear that he can find nothing to charge Paul with and that he has nothing to write in regards to the case going forward to Caesar. So then he implores Agrippa, you come up with something. You come up with something that I can write because... You know, I can't write anything about the superstition of the Jews, what they're accusing him of, resurrection, that kind of stuff. In other words, you're going to have to nail Paul for insurrection, sedition against Rome. Uh, You remember Jesus, he wants to be the king. You know, Uh, you've got to come up with something um, for me to write. And remember that Paul, Paul had been given the option to go back to Jerusalem, but he wasn't going back there. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal signify the crimes that have been laid against him. So, it seems that the entire purpose of this questioning was to find something to write to Caesar in regards to Paul, what he was appealing about. It would certainly be strange to have a man standing before uh, you appealing a charge that was never leveled against him. Why are you here? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure Festus knew that he would not, that would not reflect positively on his resume. Again, the whole thing was a joke. But God was using... Listen to this. God was using the stupidity of man to do his will in Paul's life to get the gospel to Rome, the capital of the Gentile world at that time. And then chapter number 26 we break into. Man, we are humming through the book of Acts. I don't know where I'm going to go next. Uh, If you... uh, you guys have some, uh, I'm thinking Galatians maybe, um, but um, let me know. Um, <clears throat> then chapter number 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand. In other words, he waved uh, you know, to get the people's attention that he was getting ready to speak. Um, and he answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee. Uh, touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know you. You're an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. So notice Paul, he begins to speak for himself as requested. And notice that he acknowledges that Agrippa was an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, why would why would he think that of of um, of Agrippa? Well, the Herodian dynasty the Herodian dynasty were Edomites. Um, Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Well, that's a kicker, isn't it? Uh, they were descendants of of Esau, um, which means they were technically brothers, the descendants of Jacob and Esau. Um, the 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 descendants of Esau were called Edomites, and they settled in the land of Edom, uh, which became um, also called Edomia. Um, and um, very interesting. Um, <clears throat> When you study that, and I got I got off on this for several hours the other day, because Herod the Great <clears throat> was the last known Edomian or Edomite. Uh, why is that so significant? So when Paul says, "You are an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews," so in other words, Paul saying, "I know who you are. You are a descendant of Edom." Um, <clears throat> God did not have many nice things to say about the Edomites. Um, I was looking among my, just this morning I was reading um, in Ezekiel, uh, I think it's in chapter 25. No, it could be, is it 25? Yeah, there you go. In Ezekiel 25, thus saith the Lord God, because of Moab and Seir, Behold, the house of Judah is like unto all the heathen. Therefore, behold, I will open the side of Moab from the cities, he's pronouncing judgment on the Edomites. Thus saith the Lord God, because that Edom hath dealt against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and hath greatly offended and revenged himself upon them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will stretch forth my hand upon Edom and I will cut off man and beast from it and I will make it desolate from Timon unto Dedan shall fall by the sword and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom. Why was God so upset with Edom? Um, Well, if you look over in uh, the little uh, book of Obadiah, just one little chapter there, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom I have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I've made thee small among the heathen, thou art greatly despised. Why? The pride of your heart has deceived you, and you dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is on high. Edom, the Edomites, dwelt in Seir. Seir is Petra. Who shall bring, then you say, who will bring me down from the ground? Because you live up in the clefts of the rock. Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, I will bring you down. If thieves were to come and robbers by night, they would, they would, they would not have stolen till they had enough. If the grape-gatherers had come to thee, would they not leave a few grapes? How are the things of Esau stretched out? Notice Esau. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Herod the Great was a descendant of Esau. So that's why Paul was able to say, I know that you're an expert in all customs and questions. And, <clears throat> and notice here he says in, in Obadiah 1.10, why is he wanting to destroy Edom? Because of your violence against your brother Jacob. Shame will cover you. And basically, <clears throat> the accusation that is leveled against um Edom here in Obadiah is that in in the day you stood on the other side in the day that the strangers carried away a captive his forces and the foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, and you were one of them. But you should not have looked on the day your brother in that day and become a stranger. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. When did that happen? The Babylonians. And spoken proudly in the day of their distress. You shouldn't have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. You should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of the calamity. You should not have stood in the crossway. In other words, as your brothers were fleeing, you cut them off so that they could not escape. You delivered them up. Those of his that did remain in the day of their distress. In other words, you turned your brothers, the descendants of Jacob, back into the hands of their enemies. Now, if you go back into Ezekiel, Ezekiel accuses him. You remember when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, they requested permission to go through the land of Edom. And that permission was denied, and they had to go around it. So God says, I'm going to destroy you. And of course, God did. And then I find it interesting, you know, that Herod, the one that came after the baby Jesus, was the last known Idumean. Then I also find it interesting that in the book of Revelation, it says that the Jews will flee to the rock city of Petra to find safety. Why? Because it's empty. <laughs> because God got rid of them just like he prophesied he would in Ezekiel and in the book of Ob- Obadiah. So that's why he knew that Herod was an expert in all things that was, uh, was about the Jews. Um, the Herodian dynasty was Edomites. Um, and then notice Paul says, my manner of life from my youth, which was at first among my known nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. They all know who I am. They all know that I was born and raised among them. Um, they all know that I was educated. I was a Pharisee. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, they knew me from the beginning, if they would testify about it, that after the strictest sect of our, of our religion, I lived. I was a Pharisee, man. I was a legalist. <clears throat> I stuck to the Torah. I was first among my nation and known by the Jews, um, studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And then in verse 6, and now I stand and I'm judged for the hope of the promise made of God to our fathers. There he goes again. (laughs) He's talking about that resurrection. He's talking about that coming Messiah, uh, unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come, and it finally did come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. In other words, I'm being accused of believing the prophecies that pointed toward this Messiah that we hoped and beyond hope would come by looking at these promises. So I'm standing here being judged for that. So he's making it clear that the only reason he's standing there is because he preached the resurrection, because he believed that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be. It wasn't about Mosaic law or circumcision or customs. That wasn't why he was standing there. And even if it was, um, he wouldn't have cared understand that none of this was had anything to do with Rome nothing that Rome would have been interested in he also points out that the Christ that Christ was the fulfillment of all of the promises that were given to the nation and Jesus was when you look back in the old testament it points to Jesus all of the prophecies about in the old testament point to their fulfillment in Jesus that he would come that he would offer the kingdom. The kingdom would be accepted. You know, that's what should have happened. You know, but of course Christ was rejected and he was crucified, but that had to happen. And, you know, I mean he had you know, we look at Hebrews chapter number nine. Christ had to be crucified before the sins that were committed under the Old Testament could be could be uh, what's the word that he used there? Uh, could be remitted. Uh, before the new covenant could be instituted. In other words, Christ had to die on the cross. So the rejection of the kingdom cannot be said to be the rejection of Christ on or the crucifixion. It had to have happened later. And we pointed that out. Uh, in Hebrews chapter number 9, we've talked about that. Um, hey, i have chasing rabbit trails, might as well. Um, <clears throat> in Hebrews 9... Um, he says, um, let's "See where's that here, right there? How much more the blood of Christ, which through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this cause He is the Mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament." He had to die to forgive the transgressions that were committed under the first testament. In other words, Christ could not have offered the kingdom prior to his death. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For for where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament or a covenant is of force after men are dead. So, in other words, Jesus could not have offered the, the new covenant until he had died to cover the sins that were committed under the old covenant. But he had to die in order to offer the new covenant. Because it says, for where a testament is, In other words, this New Testament, there must of necessity be the death of the testator, which is Jesus. He had to die before he could offer the New Testament. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, so too the second one was dedicated with blood. In other words, Jesus had to die. So the rejection of the kingdom could not have been the crucifixion. The the rejection of the kingdom had to have come after the crucifixion, after the death, after the birth, after, after the burial, and after the resurrection. So it had to have been offered by Peter. And that's exactly what Peter did in Acts chapter number two. And then notice verse number eight. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God would raise the dead? In other words, why would any of us be surprised that God can raise the dead? That's basically what he's saying. I mean, this is the God that flung the stars into space, made man out of dirt, breathed life into his lungs. I mean, if we can believe that about God, why could we not believe about God that he could actually raise the dead? I mean, the resurrection should be just as credible as everything else that God has done. I mean, if God can do all of those things, why can't God raise the dead? That's what he means. Why should it be thought incredible with you that God should raise the dead? In other words, it should be credible with you at this point, considering who God is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how i say some among you, there's no resurrection from the dead. Because if Christ didn't resurrect from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. And you know what? Your faith is in vain. Christ had to raise from the dead. So Paul here saying, why should we think this is so incredible that God can raise from the dead? Why we also now bear in mind, the Sadducees behind him must have been going absolutely berserk at, at this point. In verse number nine, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So now he's going back and he's sharing his testimony and says, you know, when I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, when I was living that life prior to my conversion experience in Acts chapter number nine, I I said to myself, I need to do everything I can that's contrary to this Jesus of Nazareth. Which thing I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison. Who did Paul shut up in prison? Jews, not Gentiles. Again, that word saints there. Uh, The word is used 95 times in the King James Bible. And I believe it's always referring to um, the Jews, the believing Jews, those who followed Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, having received authority from the chief priest. These guys standing behind me, they're the ones that gave me permission to do this. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. So again, Paul is uh, just referring to his pre-conversion life when he actively went after the followers of Jesus. Um, And I believe, like I said, that word saints, and again, I'm not gonna uh, write a book on it just yet, but I believe the word saints, when it's used, uh, is referring to Jewish believers. I'm heavily leaning at this point in my studies to the word only being applicable to the Jewish believers. Um, And I've had to change my vocabulary a lot. You know, I don't throw the word kingdom around anymore. Uh, I don't throw the word we are the bride of Christ around anymore. I even... uh, the word "Are we redeemed?" Uh, I'm not. I don't. I, I don't believe the body of Christ is redeemed. It's the nation of Israel that needed redemption, uh, not necessarily the Gentiles. So uh, that's a word that I, you know, I I I, I check myself before it comes out of my mouth. Um, are we saved? Are Are we born again? Is 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 the the, did the Gentile need to be born again? We were not his firstborn. Israel was his firstborn. Um, so, born again, I believe, refers to the Jew, uh, not to us. When Jesus uses the word born again with Nicodemus, he was talking to a Jew. He was in the Gospels. Paul didn't use that word. Uh, instead, we are reconciled. Uh, he is reconciling the world to himself, we are being we are preaching the gospel of reconciliation. Um, the Great Commission was the Great Commission given to the body of Christ. No, it was given to the apostles uh, in regard to the kingdom. You, you see how I mean it. It affects your vocabulary because of this filter that we've all been taught to look through. Uh, that really, you know, doesn't apply to the body of Christ. Again, you you have to separate Israel. From the church. If you don't, you're teaching replacement theology and even modern evangelicalism is simply a, a big compromise between covenant and dispensational theology. Uh, I, I don't I don't identify as an evangelical anymore to be honest with you, because I'm really not an evangelical in the sense of that definition. Uh, I'm a Bible believer, um, I'm a fundamentalist. Now, that'll get them going. Uh, But I don't identify myself as an evangelical anymore because I do not believe what the overwhelming majority of evangelicals believe. I do not embrace passive uh, replacement theology by saying the church was born in Acts chapter number 2 and that the promises that God gave to Israel are now all of a sudden for the church. I, I don't embrace that. And the vast majority of my evangelical friends do. So, I just, I I don't identify by that anymore. Um, So, again, I mean, there's definitions. Um, So, um, Scott just made a comment, Paul did mention saints a lot. Maybe we just need to rightly divide saints from saints. Hey, I'm with you, brother. I mean, just you know, it's mentioned 95 times. maybe we need to go through that you know and study it you know but it just seems like and again, a lot of this stuff is is you know when I first heard that the church might not have been born going back looking at classic dispensationalism uh, in Acts chapter number two, eh, f- you know I just kind of blew that off. but then I began to question that and I begin to dig. I begin to doubt. And now I'm just totally convinced it's not born in Acts chapter number two. Um, and the same thing happened. I think the next issue that I dealt with was the bride of Christ. Are we the bride of Christ? No, uh, we're not. Revelation 20 makes it pretty clear who the bride of Christ is. It's not us. Yet we'll take a comparison that Paul made between the church and a bride and say, "Ah ha! we're the bride of Christ. No, that was just a comparison between Christ and the and the church, that doesn't make us his bride. Uh, Christ, uh, God has betrothed himself to Israel, not to us. Um, again, and saints is at that point where I'm beginning to dig, dig, dig a little deeper, and I'm beginning to question um, if every time that word is used, is it referring to the body or is it referring to the Jews? Is it referring to both? Is it either or? I, you know, I, I don't know. I got to go down that road Still. Uh, but but I'm cautious with the word because in Corinthians, I mean, Paul says, "Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ." So he seems to be making a distinction between the saints and with everybody else that calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. theirs and ours Who's theirs and who's ours? Is that Jew, Gentile? Um again, I mean, these verses need to be looked at. Second Corinthians uh, 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to all the saints which are in Achaiae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So, you know, when he says, uh, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints that are in Achaiae. So, why is it the Church of God in Corinth, but there's saints over in Cai? I mean, it just seems like Paul is making a distinction between the two. In Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and we know that the Ephesian church was a Jewish church, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So, he's making it sound like the faithful in Christ Jesus aren't Saints, at least in that context. In Galatians uh, 1, 1-3, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren that are with me unto the, Galatians, uh, unto the churches of Galatia. Notice he doesn't use the word saints when he's writing to Galatians. To the Galatians. Why? Because it wasn't a Jewish fellowship. You know, again, you know, Galatians is probably where I'm going to go next (laughs) in my study. But again, I think, yeah, uh, Scott just mentioned we're biblicist. I'm a biblicist. I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to follow along just because that's what I've always done. You know, um, I was talking to somebody just yesterday, a seminary student here at Liberty, and I said, "Show me in the New Testament the word bride of Christ. Show it to me." You know, yeah, you know. Of course, (laughs) it's not there, and they want to go to Ephesians, and they want to point to that comparison that Paul made between uh, Christ and His Church. You know, but that doesn't make the Church the Bride of Christ. I mean, you would have to null and void much of the Old Testament, and clearly, what was said in Revelation chapter number twenty. Heck, why not? This will be my final note, and then we're done. I promise. Let's see. Is this where it is? Thrones, was it in 20? Maybe it's in 21. Uh, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. First heavens passed away. There was no more sea. I, John, sold the holy city. Notice. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God, out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You know, who's that talking about there? Who is the new Jerusalem here? Who's this bride that's adorned for her husband? Well, I mean, if you understand that the Hebrew epistles, Hebrews through Revelation was written to the Jew, I, I don't think that's talking about uh, uh, the body of Christ. I, the, the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the bride that's adorned for her husband. Are we the new Jerusalem? No, we're not even the old Jerusalem. (laughs) We're not Jewish. We're not part of the tribes. Um, Again, so I I have to check my vocabulary. Like uh, Scott said, I'm a biblicist. How's that? I'm a biblicist. I believe what the Bible says. And the Bible says that I'll go with it. But if you're just getting it out of some theology book and, you know, um, Theo 305, in seminary, I, I'm just not going to go with that anymore. So, anyway, I think we wrapped up our study there. Uh, it's been uh, it's been just an absolute pleasure to be with you guys again. God bless you. I know I'm only talking to Scott at the moment, but uh, I'm assuming other people. I know other people will be watching, and things are working out. Publishing on uh, on uh, YouTube. Matter of fact, uh, more people see it on YouTube because uh, anybody can see it on YouTube as compared to Facebook. Only the people that have access to my page can see it. So maybe it was a God thing. Uh, so still putting all that up. Still, when I get through with this, I'll put all my notes in the blog. I'll upload the audio, upload the video. And um, hope you're enjoying this study. I certainly am. Loving it, man. Probably going to go into Galatians next. Um, but help me pray about that, uh, because we... We don't have that much to go. There's only 28 chapters <laughs> in the uh, the book of Acts. And so we've only got two more to go. And I figure we'll probably knock it out in the next week because a lot of uh, 27 and 28 is Paul again sharing his testimony. Uh, so we're going to breeze through all that and recounting what had happened from his original arrest in Jerusalem. So uh, we'll talk about that next week. And probably next Sunday we'll be there Last Study. Uh, in the book of Acts, and then we'll go somewhere else from there. God bless you guys. Hope you have a great day. Memory loves you. Wants the best for you is working all things out for your good. God bless.